Sorry about that. So tonight we are beginning episode five of our series, Wrestlers and Wanderers. We're in the book of Genesis, and so if you have your Bible with you, you can turn to Genesis chapter 18. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can click on the notes section in the Crossbridge Brickle app. If you haven't downloaded it, download it, open it up. I've put all the passages there as well as extra notes, and also on the screen behind, there will be uh, the passages and some minimal notes as well. So the title of the sermon this evening is Laughter for Me. We have seen, uh, the, seen God working in the life of Abram and Sarai, who are now, their name has now officially been changed to Abraham and Sarah. They're more famous names that God has changed to Genesis chapter 17. So Abraham and Sarah, the, the parents, the father and mother of the great faith that is our faith, and we're looking into their life, and we're going to see how God uh, transforms laughter. That laughter is more than just laughing out of uh, something humorous causing us to laugh, but it has other dimensions too. For instance, have you ever laughed, Just it just erupted out of you, have you ever laughed at a statement or a declaration that somebody made that was preposterous? It was so wild that your response was just to laugh. That happens, right? We laugh sometimes because something is just so outlandish. It just doesn't, we don't understand, doesn't make sense to us. It breaks our expectations. For instance, many of us that are South Florida natives, there's a few of us in the room, I'm one of them. We have been saying for years and years that Miami is next, that it's the city, that you need to move to Miami, that there's no better place in America than Miami. And guess what people did when you said that? They laughed. Miami. You go to Miami for three days. You go to South Beach. There's really nothing there. There's not a great food scene. There's not all these different things. I mean, Miami doesn't have the infrastructure, doesn't have the big businesses. It will never compete with New York and Chicago and L.A. and San Francisco. Well, who's laughing now? Huh? Come on. We have Michelin star restaurants now. We have like half the church you moved here in the last year because you came from one of those cities because Miami's next. People laughed. They don't laugh anymore. Some, this happens, right? We say things. Someone will tell you this is the best food ever. It's the best restaurant. It's the best movie. And you laugh because you have this expectation and you're like, there's no way. Sometimes you have to eat your words because you're wrong. Maybe it is the best food or maybe it's the best movie. But we laugh for different reasons, right? When someone makes a declaration or a proclamation on something and we can't fathom that that thing could be true, it doesn't make sense to us, and so we laugh. It's just a natural response. That's exactly what happens here in Genesis chapter 18. There's a proclamation that God makes that seems so preposterous, so wild, that there's a response of laughter toward God. So here's what has taken place. Very quick recap. Um, God gave Abraham and Sarah a promise in Genesis chapter 12 been saying this every week. The promise is that they will be the parents of a great nation, that God will bless them, and they will bless others, and they will have offspring. So God promises them a child. Now, to this point, they have no children, Abraham and Sarah. We saw last week how they took matters into their own hands with Hagar and, and tried to manufacture God's promise. Did not work out well. Well, they've been waiting now, as we get to Genesis chapter 18, for 25 years They've been waiting 25 years for God to fulfill that promise. 
And here's what happens. Genesis chapter 18, starting in verse 9. And they said to him, these are the three men. I'll explain to you who they are. They said, where is Sarah, your wife? And he, Abraham, said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, so now God's speaking, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He, that is God, said, no, but you did laugh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So let me bring you up to speed on what's happening here, okay? So at the very beginning of Genesis chapter 18, we're introduced to uh, these three men. These three men that it says are outside of Abraham's tent. Now, it's later identified that these three men is God and two angels. So God and two angels, God in the flesh and two angels, have shown up outside of Abraham's tent. Now, it's about midday, which means the reason that they're outside the tent is because everybody in the middle of the day during this time period would have had a siesta inside of the tent because it's too hot outside. So you'd work in the morning, you'd work in the late afternoon, early evening, in the middle of the day you'd have a siesta, you'd go into your tent and you'd relax. So these three men show up outside of Abraham's tent and Abraham notices them. Now Abraham recognizes that something significant is happening, that these are not three ordinary men, and so he runs out to meet them, and there when he meets them, he comes to understand that this is the Lord and two angels. Something significant is happening, so he bows down before these three men, and he requests that he has the opportunity to show them hospitality. He wants them to have their feet washed, which was a common ritual when you have honored guests, you'd wash their feet when they would come to enjoy a meal. He wants to get a meal ready. He wants them to rest and get off their feet. He wants them to feel refreshed. So he requests this, and, and this, is, this is given to him so he can show them hospitality. So they stay there, and he runs off. The story kind of runs in rapid speed. So it says that he runs to his wife, Sarah, lets her know what's going on, and says, hey, listen, you got to start baking some bread. Like, get the bread, the fresh, the fresh bread, start making bread. We have these three guests. Here's who they are. And then he runs from there. He runs to the farm, and at the farm, he goes and finds the best cow. And he, he gets one of his, his farmers. He says, listen, here's the cow. Kill this cow. Cut it up in steaks. He wants Wagyu. It's Wagyu for them only, okay? So he's going to get the nicest cow, the best steaks. And then he goes to the dairy farm. He goes to the dairy farm, and he gets cheese, and he gets fresh milk, and he gets all of this together because what he's doing is preparing this royal banquet. He brings the steaks and the cheese and the milk and the bread, and he brings it to these guests, and he brings it before them. And they begin to rest and to eat. And now the story slows because the attention is not on the frantic behavior of Abraham, who is modeling great hospitality and is preparing this royal feast for these guests, but it focuses on one of the three men that is identified as the Lord. It's identified as God. And God speaks, 
to Abraham. They're eating. He's probably sweating. He's relaxing. Wow, that was a lot. And God says, Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, they're outside of his tent. Maybe they put up a little pop-up tent, and they're eating there. God knows where Sarah is, that she's in the tent. It says she's in the tent listening in on the conversation. So God knows that Sarah's in the tent, especially because she would have been in her husband's tent in the middle of the day because everybody goes back to their tents because it's too hot, but also because he's God and he knows where Sarah is. But he, do, he says that because he wants Sarah in the tent to hear what he's about to say and everyone else to kind of focus their attention right on God speaking to Abraham. So this focuses in, and then God makes this declaration, this proclamation to Abraham, which is in verse 10. Here's what it says. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. So God wants to get everyone's attention. And he says, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to come back in one year, about this time. And I'm going to fulfill the promise I made to you 25 years ago. Sarah's going to conceive a child and deliver a baby. And have that son that was promised to you. Can you imagine the relief? (laughs) 25 years of prayers. 25 years of waiting. 25 years of mistakes trying to manufacture God's promise on your own. 25 years of feeling frustrated, of wondering, is this ever going to happen? Finally, God gives a precise time. One year from now, the fulfillment of the promise is going to come. Your wife is going to conceive and have a child. Now, this declaration that God makes Though it's, you read it, and if you have been tracking in the story, you're like, wow, this is great relief. Finally, it requires faith. This declaration requires faith. Why? What does the very next verse say? It wants us to know, the narrator wants us to know that that statement by God to Abraham with, with Sarah listening in requires faith. Because the next verse says, now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. Most scholars believe, and we read in Scripture, that Abraham is about 100 years old. Sarah's 90. And she is past the point where she can actually physically have kids. They are past that time in their life where they naturally can conceive. And so what it's saying is that this declaration that God is making is going to be a miracle It's going to require God doing something miraculous because they cannot manufacture this on their own. They can't have kids. She's been barren her whole life, and now they are too old to actually physically, naturally have kids on their own. So as God makes this proclamation, they will have to believe in faith. So it kind of elicits this response if you're reading in the story and you're thinking, how are they going to respond to this? They've been waiting for this moment for 25 years. Finally, finally, the promise has come. Will they have faith or will they doubt? What is their response going to be from this fulfillment of this promise? Well, 
Here's the response. The attention now is directed to Sarah, who's in the tent, and she's listening in. Here's what it says in verse 13. So God has given this promise. One year I'm going to fulfill it. It's going to require faith because it's a miracle because they're too old to have kids on their own. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? Here's the the translation. Sarah's listening in the tent. God is speaking to Abraham. Hey, I'm going to fulfill that promise that you've been waiting 25 years ago. Next year, you have to have faith because it's going to be a miracle because I know you guys are past the point where you can actually naturally have kids. And Sarah's listening. And when God makes that declaration, she laughs. Like, come on. That's the response. Her response is this. God, come on. Now? Really? You're going to fulfill the promise when I'm 90. Oh, now I'm going to have the pleasure of being a mother when I'm old and exhausted and worn out. Okay. Got it. She's given up. Now, before you start to judge Sarah and think like, oh, what happened to Sarah's faith? Why is she laughing at God? Why is she mocking this declaration? Why doesn't she have faith to believe in this miracle? The chapter before, Genesis chapter 17 When God makes that declaration to Abraham, guess what his response is? He laughs. Why do Abraham and Sarah laugh when God gives them this declaration that he's going to fulfill the promise in their life? It's because they have accepted barrenness as normal. That's their life. They have given up on the promises of God. They've given up on the fact that they're going to have kids on their own. They don't believe it's possible. It doesn't make sense to them. It's not physically possible. Naturally, it makes no sense. Their faith has been rooted in what they can see and what makes sense to them, and they've accepted barrenness as normal. Now, here's what I love about this. I love a couple things. One is that the Bible is so transparent. Don't you love that? Like, when you read the scriptures, it does not paint everybody in a great light. Abraham and Sarah are are like, they're the couple of the faith. They're highlighted and honored and esteemed, and yet you see time and time again their failures and their brokenness. I love that because do you know what myths do? They take the protagonist and they take the hero and they make them flawless. Because the protagonist, the hero, has to be the one of strength and courage and faith and belief. And they conquer their demons and they win the battle. Well, the heroes in Scripture are just like us. They're full of doubt. They're broken. They fail. They laugh at God. God makes a proclamation that requires faith and they laugh. Like, come on, God. Okay. They're just like us. I love that. And I also... I so greatly appreciate this example of Abraham and Sarah laughing in God's face when he makes this promise to them because they've accepted barrenness as normal because it's so relatable. Here's a question I want to ask you. What have you accepted in your life as normal causing you to miss the miracle that God's working? What in your life have you accepted as normal? Like, this is just how it's always going to be. It's never going to change. It's just who I am. This is just my life. And so, therefore, you're missing the miracle that God is working. Abraham and Sarah are missing the miracle that God is going to work in their life because they're so focused on what makes sense to them. This is just normal for us. We're just barren. We're not going to have kids. We don't believe. 
What in your life have you accepted as normal and you're just like, you're missing the miracle that God's working because you think to yourself, I'm always going to struggle with this same thing. I'm always going to struggle with it. I'm always going to have this anxiety and this depression. That's just what my life is all about. I'm always going to be viewed in this light. People are always going to say these things about me. I'm always going to be kept down in my career and overlooked. My relationships are always going to go just like this because that's just how it works for me. What have you accepted in your life as normal, causing you to miss the miracle that God is working? I want you to consider this. If God is real, and he's active, and he's powerful, then your normal is not fixed. If God is real, and he's active, and he's powerful, whatever you have determined that is normal for you and will always be the case for you is not fixed. Nothing is fixed. That's exactly what God says to Sarah. When she laughs at this declaration that God makes because she cannot fathom that she could have a child, She's waited too long. It makes no sense to her. God's response to Sarah is not to shame her. It's not to embarrass her because she laughs. His response is, is anything too big for the Lord? Like, Sarah, you laugh. I get it because it doesn't make sense to you. You've been waiting a long time for this promise to be fulfilled. But is anything really too big for me? Like, like apply that to yourself. If you have been been operating with whatever is normal in your life is now fixed, it'll never change, you'll always be this person, you'll always experience this pain and this difficulty, whatever it may be. If if you're operating as it being fixed, then essentially what you're saying is, hey God, you know, I believe in you, great, I believe in you, but I know you you can't change this. This is too big for you. How could it be? How could anything be too big for God? That is... God's response to Sarah. See, his response to Sarah is not to shame her or embarrass her. It's to elevate her faith. It's to lift her up to see who God is. She's been operating with God and she has a very small view of God. I've been barren my whole life. Come on, God, you can't change this. God says, is anything too big for me? Do you see who I am? You see, Sarah could not see in herself what God saw in her. Sarah couldn't see in herself what God saw in her and what God wanted to do through her. She couldn't fathom it. And so I think many of us, we're a lot like Abraham and Sarah. We miss the miracle that God is working in our lives because we believe, maybe we don't say it out loud, but we believe internally that certain things in our life are too big for God. We've been waiting too long for him to fix these things, so I guess he can't fix it. It's just how it's always going to be. God's response to Sarah is response to you and me, which is nothing is too big for him. Nothing is too big for him. So here, as Sarah, like us, has these eyes of faith, which are attached to what makes sense to her and what is practical and what is natural, God is now challenging her faith to believe in the supernatural, to believe in a miracle. Why? Because she believes in a God who can do anything. Nothing is fixed in God's eyes. And so God responds to Sarah, tells her that nothing is fixed, wants to elevate her faith because her faith has been focused on what makes sense to her and what she can see. You see, it's so easy to operate like that, right? It's so easy to have faith 
and what you can see and what you can control and what is predictable because it's not really faith. And sometimes we're like, I have faith in this. I have faith in that or I have faith in God. But we operate in such a way as these things are fixed, they can't be changed, and we try to control different things. And if we can't control it, and if it requires something supernatural, if it's going to be a miracle, because we've tried many times to, ch- to change it and to fix it, and it's never worked, and it really requires faith, it really requires surrender, it really requires believing that God can work a miracle and do something supernatural, then we're like, ah, I don't know. I don't know about that. See, God is calling her as he's calling us to really have faith. What is faith? Faith is complete trust or confidence in someone or something. Complete trust in someone or something. Complete confidence in someone or something. So what does that mean for you in your relationship with God? If you have faith in God, then you need to have complete trust and confidence that every something that you bring to him is not fixed. Whatever your normal is that you want to offer to God is not fixed because you have complete trust and complete confidence in the very God who oversees every aspect of your life. It's not fixed. It can't possibly be fixed. Nothing is too hard for God. When you hear that, do you believe that? Do you believe that your normal is not fixed? Or are you laughing? No, you're not laughing audibly, but are you laughing internally? Like, okay, great. Good word, but I don't know. Not this. See, laughing is natural. It's a natural response for many of us, but God is in the business of transforming our laughter of mockery into marveling. We laugh oftentimes out of this response of like mocking. We can't believe it. It doesn't make sense. We're kind of mocking God. Yeah, right. But God's in the business of transforming our laughter of mockery into marveling. That's exactly what happens here with Sarah. One year later, here's what happens. One year later, God comes to Sarah and Abraham. And you know what he does? He upholds his promise. He's faithful to his promises. Like he always is, they conceive a child and they give birth to a healthy baby boy whose name is Isaac. Now when this happens... Sarah responds, and here's what she says. Genesis chapter 21, verse 6. Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. Now, here's what she's saying. She's not saying, wow, a year ago when God gave me this promise, and called me to believe in faith that he was going to work a miracle in our lives and we were going to have a child. I laughed in God's face. And now God has fulfilled it. And so, unfortunately, because of my lack of faith, now everyone's going to laugh at me. When they hear my story, when they hear about what happens, when they read about me, they're going to laugh at me. That's not what she's saying. The translation here in Hebrew is speaking about how God is transforming her laughter. That a year ago, she was laughing at God in mockery. Like, come on, God, you can't do that. And now she's laughing at what God did despite her doubt. God has made laughter for me. And when people read my story, when they hear what happened, they're going to laugh. Not out of mockery, but out of marveling at what God has done. 
See, she's saying that now when people see what God did despite my doubt, they are going to laugh out of joy. They're going to laugh marveling at the very God who works in our lives even when we doubt that he's working. And her child is named Isaac. Do you know what Isaac means? He laughs. Isn't that funny? He laughs. God has transformed laughter in Sarah's life. When these great promises and declarations came to her and came to Abraham, they're like, okay, we've been waiting a long time. We don't feel like you're listening, God. This is too big for you. We've accepted this as normal for our life. They laughed at God. Well, God has transformed their laughter to now they are laughing at how incredible God is, at what he's done in their life, at the promise that he's fulfilled, at who he is. And in the midst of their doubt, God was still working and fulfilled his promises to them. You see, there's a very famous uh, phrase or expression, maybe you've heard it before, which goes like this. You make plans and God, what? Laughs. Now, oftentimes we hear that and we think of it like, you know, God is laughing at how we try to take our lives into our own hands. Like, okay, we'll see how you do with that one, you know. And, and I think that there's actually a better intention on that phrase, which is this. We make plans. We believe things are normal. We try to control our lives. We try to fix our lives. And God laughs, but he's not laughing at us. We never see that in Scripture. That never happens with Sarah. He's never laughing at Sarah. He's elevating her to see who he is. When we make plans and God laughs, what he's laughing at is what we will soon see. It's what we will see in time, that God is working miracles in our life even when we don't see it, even when we don't believe it. That that is how he operates. He is not giving us blessings and, and, and building miracles in our life and transforming things in our life because we're acting right. That's not grace. God works in our life even when we don't believe that he can. He still does so that he'll, our laughter will be transformed from mockery and doubt into joy and marveling. You see, God is a miraculous working God who works without judgment. He is a miraculous working God who works in our lives without judgment over our failures, over our doubt, over our laughter of mockery. He does. Why? Why does God work in our life with the absence of judgment? I think it's because he wants us to understand something so simple but so profound. You see, one of the things that keeps us from really loving people is rejection or the fear of rejection. We're afraid of judgment. We're afraid of being rejected. We're afraid of how people may treat us. Whatever it may be, we're afraid of being rejected and judged. And so that keeps us oftentimes from loving people and from experiencing love. And yet that is, is something that we, have, that we try to conquer, we try to work through in our life, but we understand the importance of love. I want to ask a very basic question. You don't have to say it out loud, but I want you to think about it. What matters most in life? What matters most in life? Now, if we went around the room and polled what, what matters most, there may be some different answers, but I think most of us would agree that some of the things that we give so much time and attention to and so many things that we, we try to operate and, and fix our attention on, they don't matter as much in the grand scheme of things. Our career doesn't matter as much. Our reputation, what we gain, our bank account, 
You know, these things that we dedicate so much time to, they don't matter as much. What matters most in life? Love. It's who you love and who loves you. The experience of love, the development of love, the deepening of love, the finding a relationship and finding people that you can show love to and not be fearful of judgment and rejection because there's really true love there. That's what matters most. Uh, and this caused me to go on a train of thought this week, which is something that's always perplexed me. And that's this question. Why is it that, at, that people, when they're at the end of their life, or they know that their days are numbered, why do so many people near the end of their life find God? Why do they surrender to Jesus? Why do they come to believe? Now, some people may say, right, I, I'm, I'm a skeptic and I'm, I can have a cynical mind, so I could think like this. Well, it's probably because they're hedging their bets. You know what I mean? Like, it's the end of life. Maybe they didn't believe in God. They're like, if there's an afterlife, I want to be on the right side of that. You know, so we're going to hedge the bets here because if there's no God, there's no afterlife. If I believe in God at the end of life, then like, no loss. But if there is a God and there is an afterlife and I've been rejecting it my whole life, well then like, you know, I want fire insurance. You know what I mean? I, I want to go to heaven. You know what I mean? Like, so here we go, God, let's try this, end of life. I, I mean, that's like cynical. I don't actually think that's true. Here's what I think happens. I think at the end of your life, something takes place in, in the human soul, which is you begin to contemplate what really matters. What really matters. When you talk to people, when, when they, they know their days are numbered or they're nearing the end of their life, they, they don't speak about the things they've bought, how much money they've made, their career, their reputation, what they speak about and who they want to see and spend time with are the people they love. They recall the memories of vacations and, and times that they had a, full of laughter and joy where they spent time with people they loved. Because at the end of life, you come to this realization that what really matters more than anything is love. And the reason that I think people they, they find God, they experience God, they surrender their life to God at the end of their life is because what has become so close to them in their mind, in their heart, in their soul is the importance of love. And when you contemplate love, when love comes close to you, do you know what is very near? God. Because God is love. When you are thinking on love and prioritizing love and you bring that close, God is love. You are, direct con you are in direct contact with God because he is love. He is perfect love. He is unconditional love. And I think that is why so many people come to find God at the end of their life. And I think what happens here with Sarah and why God has transformed laughter for her and she is worshiping and she's saying people are going to laugh when they read my story is because she has come in contact with the very God who loves her. And she sees God, God's love in a totally different light. It is not based on any conditions. God did not judge her. He did not shame her. He did not look to embarrass her. That a year ago she doubted God. She couldn't believe what God said. She laughed in God's face. And one year later, God still kept his promise to her, gave her that child, fulfilled the promise, didn't say anything in the meantime, just fulfilled it and poured out his love upon her and she responds with joy. You see, I want you tonight to see and to experience and to believe what Sarah went through in that year and Abraham right alongside of her and that is this. 
Everything in your life that you believe in is normal is not fixed. It is not. Nothing is too big for God. Whatever it is, it is not too big for God. Your normal is not fixed. Secondly, when you doubt God, when you're skeptical, when you don't know, that does not deter God from working in your life. He's still working. Miraculous things in your life. He wants to transform your life. And even when you doubt it, he's going to keep working because he's faithful. And then third, God loves you unconditional love, not because you came to church, not because you read your Bible seven times, not because you prayed so many times, not because you have really worked on your holiness. No, he just loves you based on no conditions because he loves you out of grace. He just has poured his love out on you, and that's why he gave you his son. That's why Jesus died for you, not so that you could perform for God, that you could receive God's love. He loves you. So I want to ask you to do something tonight. We're going to close in prayer, and I want you to, to bring to mind just one thing, just one thing in your life that you have determined is your normal, is how it's always going to be. It's never going to change. I want you to bring it to mind, and I want to read a prayer that I wrote, and I want you to make it your prayer. I want you to bring it to God, believing that even when you doubt, God is working and that he loves you. He doesn't judge you. He's not looking to shame you, embarrass you. He wants you to believe that he could work miraculously in your life. I want you to bring that to mind right now, and will you pray with me? Here's what God wants us to understand. Lord, we bring this to you. God, I give you my normal. I know with you it's not fixed. I don't want to miss the miracle you are working. Give me the faith to completely trust you and have full confidence in you. Allow me now, right now, to experience your love, your judgment-free love. God, make laughter for me a response of worship, not doubt. And would everyone who hears what you will do in my life laugh over me, not at me, but over me because of how you have worked. For I know what you are doing in my life is miraculous. So I, I surrender my normal to you. I believe nothing is too big for you. I ask you to work to give me faith to give me a fresh experience now with your love. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.